Thank you, worship team. That was, that was good, wasn't it? Worship's good for your soul. It's good to be reminded at least once a week that God is God and we are not, isn't it? It was a delayed response, but I'll take it. <laughs> All right, church. Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles together and turn to the passage that was just read, Third John. Last week we read 2 John and studied it together. Today I want to look at 3 John. And you probably noticed as Lorraine was reading this letter that the themes in the language of 3 John are very similar to 2 John. There's a lot of talk about love, truth, those things that are even uh, present in the first letter of John. But 3 John is a little different than 2 John you know, Second John, I said the theme last week was truth and love and the balancing of those two things, the combining of those two things, actually, in the Christian life. There's a laser focus in Third John as well, but it's not love and truth necessarily. That laser focus is indicated in verse 11. Just look at verse 11 with me. John writes, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. That statement right there synthesizes this entire message from this letter. Imitate good, Gaius. Pursue that which is good. Turn away from evil. Reject evil and run to that which is good. That's a distillation, if you will, of the entire Christian life. This is what we do and pursue the good, put away the evil. When I was a kid, there were these commercials that would come on TV all the time when I would watch sports, when I would watch football or basketball. And the commercials, they were, they were automobile commercials. I don't know what it is about sports that leads to automobile commercials. I guess people are more inclined to buy vehicles if they watch sports, I don't know. But I, the most memorable sports our uh, automobile commercial when I used to watch sports was the Lexus commercial. Do y'all remember this? The relentless pursuit of perfection. Those commercials were so classy. You just felt classy as you watched the commercial. <laughs> and it was technologically cool, whatever they would reveal about this car that sometimes seemed smarter than I was. And the voiceover would always include that catchphrase, the relentless pursuit of perfection. And when I think about that now, that's kind of like how I see the discipleship process in the church. We are relentlessly pursuing perfection. We are relentlessly pursuing Jesus Christ, the embodiment of perfection, right? And maybe that term perfection is intimidating to you. And it, it's a bit intimidating to me. So I've, I've tweaked that a little bit. And here's, here's the title for the message this morning. The relentless pursuit of the good. The relentless pursuit of the good. That's what we're going for this morning. That's what we're going for in our Christian lives. That's what John would have us give our lives to. Here it is again. Here's the command he gives to Gaius. Beloved, verse 11, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. This is our pursuit. And I want to give you this morning four disciplines, if you will, in that pursuit. So that's your outline for today. Four good disciplines among Christ followers. Are you a Christ follower here this morning? Are you now? Raise your hands. 
Four things from 3 John that you as a Christ follower can do, a good pursuit that is pleasing to the Lord. Here's the first one. Number one, walking in the truth with fellow believers. Do this, Harvest Decatur. Walk in the truth. Walk in the truth. 50, 60, 70 years of that is the Christian life. You might say, I don't got 50 years left, Pastor Tony. All right, well, however many years you have left. This is what we do. We walk in the truth, and you don't have to do that alone. You can do that with fellow believers, as John will tell us here in just a few moments. John starts this letter by saying this, verse 1. He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, John is an old man by this time, referring to himself as the elder. That's a term of authority, but it's also just reality. He's an older man now. And you might ask, well, who is Gaius? We don't know. It's a very common name in the Roman Empire. There are lots of Gaiuses even in the New Testament. But I don't think this Gaius is any of those Gaiuses. We don't, we don't know who he is. He's a man who's shrouded in mystery. The only thing we know about him is what John writes here. He's probably a leader in the church, I would guess. He may even be one of the leaders of the elect lady from 2 John. Remember, John wrote 2 John to the church. He wrote 3 John to a person, Gaius. So maybe he sent those two letters together, and Gaius is a leader in the elect later lady church that John writes to in 2 John. I don't know. That's speculative, but that's, that's possible. We do know this about Gaius. We know for sure that this man, Gaius, was loved by John, and he was a believer. We know that, that he was a believer in Jesus Christ. You might say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Tony? Well, we know it because John uses this word beloved in the first verse. Who is Gaius loved by, beloved by? Well, Gaius is loved by God. Why is Gaius loved by God? Because Gaius has believed on Jesus Christ as his Savior. That's his status before God. He is a beloved son of God in the way that we are children of God when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. You know, people often quote John 3.16 in our culture and, and as a reference to God's love for the world, and that's great. I love that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But let's not forget John 3.18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. My point is this, God's love is appropriated to us when we believe, when, we're, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then we receive God's love and God's forgiveness. You are one of the beloved. Are you loved by God? Are you the beloved? Are you now? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have believed in his death, if you believe in his resurrection, yes, you are a child of God and you are loved by God. Gaius is a believer. Here's why I'm belaboring this point on beloved. I want you to know that everything that John writes here in 3 John is based on the assumption that Gaius is a believer. Do you know why that's important? If Gaius wasn't a believer, John would not give him these good things to do. He would say, listen, Gaius, you need to get saved, man. But already in verse 1, he's got this assumption going that you are beloved, you are saved, you are following Jesus. And so he repeats that word beloved four times in this book, verse 1, verse 2, verse, verse uh, 5, verse 11. I want you to know too, Harvest Decatur, 
I, I want us to pursue good. I want us to pursue good as a church. But you can't start that good pursuit until you know Jesus. You don't even know what good is until you know Jesus. That's the starting point. You gotta be loved by God. You gotta receive the love of God. God loved you first, and so we love him back. And that, that goodness that we live out needs to flow from that status as a child of God. Otherwise, you're, you're hopelessly lot chasing morals and chasing moralism without being saved. By the way, if you're not saved, you don't have the Holy Spirit to help you along the way. So the first step in this pursuit of good is to be saved. But guys is saved, okay? So with that assumption, now John gets right into it in verse two. He says, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Is it okay to pray for somebody else's health? Is it now? Yeah, it is. Does this make John a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher? Praying for this person's health? No, it doesn't. No, it's okay to pray. You're like, whew, I'm glad because we've been praying for people's health in my small group, Pastor Tony. No, you should pray for one another's health. But notice also that, you know, John doesn't stop there. He also prays for Gaius' soul, and that's so important. By the way, one of the differences between praying for somebody's health and what a lot of health, wealth, and prosperity preachers preach is, we, you know, we don't dictate to God. We pray to God, and we accept it when, Je- when Jesus says, no, you will struggle. I'm not going to heal you for whatever reason. My purposes is being accomplished in this weakness, just like Paul with the thorn in the flesh. We don't dictate terms to God in our prayers. But can you pray for good health? Absolutely you can. And in fact, you know, there's something to be said for good health being useful, for being a good steward of God's grace and for preaching the gospel and so forth and so on. Also, I will say this. I I can't say this for sure from verse two, but I bet as John prayed for Gaius that he prioritized prayers for Gaius' soul even above his physical health. You know, when I go to hospitals and visit people, like I've done for some of you, when I go and, and pray for you, um, you know, I, I, I pray for healing. I pray for God to use doctors to help and to bring about a full recovery. But I also pray for your soul. You guys know that. That God would teach you what, what you need to learn in that moment of suffering, teach you maybe about your own weakness in that moment. And, and in some cases, if I don't know the person, I'm praying for their salvation. But, you know, maybe the sickness that they're enduring right now is what's going to bring them to Christ, the reality of their own weakness. And I would just commend that to you, elders, as we're praying for people at the front of the service, not just praying for their well-being, not just praying for physical health, but for their soul, for their soul. That's what John prays for here. And then in verse 3, John says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came, and testify to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Good job, Gaius. I have no greater joy, says John, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Here's more evidence of Gaius' salvation. Gaius is walking in the truth. Gaius has believed the truth. It's possible even that John is the one that led Gaius to the Lord, and that's why he refers to him as one of his children who are walking in the truth. And also, John says there are brothers who saw Gaius, 
who can testify to the fact that Gaius is walking in the truth? Oh yeah, John, we saw that guy Gaius. You know what? That guy is legit. That guy is walking in the truth. That guy is growing as a disciple. Words getting around to John that, that this guy, Gaius, is, is the real deal. Is really a disciple, is really growing, is a real Christian and a beneficial Christian to the church. Now, let me ask you something, Harvesticator. Let's say people came to your house this weekend, brothers from another part of the world, let's say 10 different people from 10 different parts of the world, 10 Christians, and they came in and they looked at your life and they saw what you did day in and day out. What would they say about you? Would they say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That person indicator is legit. They are a growing disciple. She is a growing disciple. She worships, walks, and works for Christ. She's, she's the real thing. Does that make you nervous, the idea of somebody coming to you and reporting on you? What would those people go back to their churches? Ten, ten people from different parts of the world went back to the church. What would they say about Harvest Decatur? What would they say about us? Oh, yeah, that church is legit. The people there are... are following the Lord, they're following Christ, they're walking in the truth. I would want that said about me. I don't know about you. Would you? I would want to make that kind of impression like Gaius made upon the people that came to visit him. Uh, Pastor Tony's walking in the truth. The people in the church are walking in the truth. To that you might say, okay, I want to do that, Pastor Tony, but what what does that even look like, walking in the truth? It's too metaphorical for me. Can you, can you make that more practical? What does walking in the truth look like? All right, I'll make it practical. How do you walk in the truth? Well, you can start here. You can get to church on Sunday, every Sunday. You did that this morning. Good job out of you. Well done. That's part of it. Here's another part of it. You can open your Bibles more than just once a week in front of Pastor Tony on Sunday. You do that. You learn God's word. You walk in the truth. Now you come to church on Sunday, yeah, and hopefully today you learn, you will learn something about 3 John that you didn't know yesterday. You grow in that truth. But, but now you've got to put it into practice, right? And so another part of walking in the truth is that you are a doer of God's word, not just to hear, not just, oh, that's some fun stuff, Pastor Tony. Thanks for all those details. And it's like in one ear and out the other. You're a doer of God's word, not just a hearer. That's what walking in the truth looks like. It means, too, that you go to small group and you open up about your struggles and you ask other people to pray for you and you're honest in your disclosure about, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me? That's walking in the truth. You don't have to do that alone. We can help each other in that. Walking in the truth, too, it means that you're more passionate about Jesus than you are about your hobbies and your your politics and your family and your sports teams go St. Louis Blues come on now right you're more passionate be passionate about the Blues for, for they need some help here <laughs> I almost heard an amen from that <laughs> but you know our passion and I loved I loved our worship said already this morning it was good hearing people sing I love sitting on the front row hearing people sing behind me and just filling up the room with praise let's be more passionate about that than we are about in my case the Denver Broncos okay 
Can we do that now? Is everybody with me? Okay. Are we done yet, Pastor Tony? No, that was number one. Here's numbers two. I got three more points. Go ahead and write this down as number two. Here's a second good pursuit for Christ's followers. And this is key to this book, showing hospitality to fellow believers. Showing hospitality to fellow believers. John says this in verse five. He says, beloved, it is a faithful, faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. You might say, whoa, now who are the brothers? Who are we talking about here? These are the brothers in verse four who brought back a good report about Gaius to John. They told John, yeah, Gaius is, is the real deal. He's, he's a real believer walking in the truth. And now we get some more info on these brothers. They were actually strangers to Gaius. He didn't know who they were until they showed up at his house. And verse six tells us that these brothers testified to Gaius's love before the church. They actually went back to John and before the church, they said good stuff about Gaius and what he's doing in his church. John writes, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, the name of Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, verse 8, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So here's the cultural situation at this time. You need to know this in order to make sense of what John is saying here. Um, and I talked a little bit about this last week in Second John. John tells people in Second John, you might remember from last week, to not be hospitable to those who are false teachers. Do you remember that? It says, don't even let them into your houses. Don't even greet them. Because they were not teaching the truth. They were teaching false truths, uh, falseness about Jesus, that he was this phantom being that didn't really even uh, come in the flesh to earth. And you know, John, John's writing this letter, Third John, also Second John, somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s AD. So this is like 60 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And John is probably the only living witness left that saw Jesus in the flesh, saw him walk, saw him die, saw him resurrected from the grave. And so John, John's not having any of that false doctrine. He tells them in 2 John, don't tolerate people who circulate lies about Jesus. Don't even let them in your house. Don't even greet them. That's how serious he is about this truth of Jesus. Because a show of hospitality like that would communicate to the community and, and to unbelievers too in the cities wherever the church is that, yeah, they are with us. Those false teachers are with us. They're like us. What they believe is what we believe. But John says here, about good teachers, in the same way that you should not show hospitality to bad teachers, you need to go out of your way to show hospitality to good teachers, faithful teachers, worthy teachers, and even pull out the red carpet for them and love on them and, and feed them. You know, just a reminder too, there's no, there are no holiday inns or Hiltons at this time. The public inns at this time were, you know, they doubled as brothels. And they were, in many places, dangerous and disgusting places. And so this was the only, you know, people going out, preaching the gospel. That was a dangerous work. That was a difficult work. Read the, read the book of Acts and see what happened to Paul, and you know all about that. 
And so this is, John is saying, you know, a church can step in right now. Gaius, you can help these believers who are dedicating themselves, going about preaching the gospel, preaching the truth about Jesus. You do your part as a good steward of, of the resources that you have and let them into your house and show them hospitality. In fact, that's what Gaius was doing. And John commends him for that. Sonny and I were talking about that this week as I was studying and we were reminiscing about uh, our friend Lee Wilkinson who came and, and spent some time with us this week at our house. You know, 20 years ago when Sonia and I went off to seminary in Chicago, we, we, left, we left everything in Texas. We left, we left our steady jobs, we left our friends, we left our church, and we moved a thousand miles north to, we didn't know anybody, really. And my friend Lee, who I knew from college, he, he opened up his home to this young married couple who wanted, you know, I, I want to be a pastor, I want to be in ministry, I want to, f- opened up his home, opened up generosity, hospitality to us to let us live with him for six months until we got on our, on our feet in Chicago. And so Lee, my friend, he was traveling to Texas this week for work and he stayed with us and we got to reciprocate in, one, in just a small way, come stay with us at our house. Now we can show hospitality to you as you're going somewhere. Would you be willing to do that, Christian? For a struggling pastor wannabe? Six months? You know, and then Sonny and I were talking about that. I mean, that was 2001 when I went to seminary. In 2007, you know, we started traveling down here to the the far-flung city of Arthur, Illinois. Where's that on the map? And... Lo and behold, Mary and Maurice Bagley opened up their house to us and we came down. When I first got hired in Arthur, you know, we would come down on Friday and we would have meetings and then I would get ready to preach and then I would preach on Sunday and then we'd spend the day with them meeting people in the church and then we'd drive back to Chicago on Sunday night or Monday. And we did that for six months, coming in and out and in and out until we finally bought a place in Arthur. Would you be willing to do that for another believer? And then, you know, we came to Decatur. This is kind of a pattern in our life. We lived with <laughs> the Witt Churches for a while, and then we lived in Deb Gaskin's house and until we bought our own house. I was just telling Sonia, like, we have been the recipient of such incredible generosity and hospitality. And that's the way it should be, church. And that should be expected of us for others like others gave it to us when we had need. Everybody with me? And I'm not asking you this morning to open up your house for six months for Sonia and I, all right? I'm not. I'm not sure John is asking everybody to do that. But, you know, you can start somewhere. You can open up your house for a fellow believer, can't you? Show a little generosity, a little hospitality. Last Sunday night, we went over to to Dave and Rachel Wingard's house and had pork ribs. Hospitality. It was fantastic. And then we played lawn games. You can do that. Summer's a great time to do that, by the way. And just pour out a little love, pour out a little generosity, pour out a little hospitality on other people within the church. Can I get an amen, church? Are you with me? Listen, I know know how it is. Hospitality is a lost art in America. We're Americans. We're independent, right? We have 10 feet fences around our, our backyard and we have a, you know, these two car garages and that open and close like, like they're closing over a moat in our castles. And we like to lock ourselves in and don't go outside. And I'm just saying that's not biblical at all. 
That's not the expectation that God has upon believers. You know, I know how it is. Americans, we are, we are solitary creatures, right? We like John Wayne. We like the Lone Ranger. We, you know, and, and I'm from Texas. Texans are the worst at this. Independent, solitary creatures. We don't need anybody. I think I told you all this about Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt didn't want the bald eagle to be our national emblem. He wanted it to be the grizzly bear, this lonely, isolated creature that can go out to the woods and just live on their own. That's, that's America. We don't need anybody. And I actually heard about Teddy Roosevelt, good Christian man in a lot of ways, a lot of admirable, admirable traits, but he would actually just disappear into the woods for weeks sometimes, and nobody knew where he was, even when he was the president. Can you imagine that right now? Where's the president? I don't know. He's somewhere in North Dakota. That's how, we, that's how we are wired as Americans. That's our history. That's not how the Bible would have us, though. The Bible would have us opening up our homes to other people. John doesn't commend Gaius for being a solitary individualist. He commends him for opening up his home to show other people love and generosity and hospitality. That's evidence of walking in the truth. And by the way, the elders in our church know this. Showing hospitality is a requirement for elders. First Timothy 3. And I don't, I don't think that's just because, you know, in that day and age, when Paul was writing that, they needed to open up their homes to people who were traveling. I, I think that's part of it. I think the reason that Paul put that there is because that's a sign of maturity. Somebody who opens up their home, somebody who shows hospitality, there's, there's character there that's worthy of somebody serving in a leadership capacity. But that's not just for the elders in this room, hospitality. This is a worthwhile pursuit for all of us as believers. Last summer, I called it the summer of hospitality. You remember that? And I challenged all of you to open up your homes to at least two other families in the church. Can we do that again this summer? Can we now? And I would even say, you know, don't limit it to the people in our church. Open up your homes to the people in your neighborhood. Open up your homes to the people who are maybe passing through, who need a place to stay, friends or others, and Let's put this into practice. Here's another good discipline for us. Write this down as number three. This is not an easy one either, church. I don't think hospitality is an easy thing for us to embrace. This one is difficult too, confronting selfish behavior among fellow believers. You know, John is, I've called him the apostle of love before because you know, he's always talking about love in his letters. He's the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. But, you know, let's not forget that John is also described in the Bible as the son of thunder, as one of the sons of thunder. da na 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 you know. This thunderous, strong man, maybe of passionate temperament. And sometimes that comes out in John. We saw that in Second John, and we know that John was not this people-pleasing pushover. And now in Third John, <laughs> he's going to get straight with some people, one person in particular. Look at verse 9. He says, I have written something to the church, maybe Second John, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Hello, 
don't acknowledge the, the, the apostle John? Really? The one who saw Jesus face to face, commissioned as an apostle? You're not going to acknowledge him? Verse 10, so if I come, says John, look out. I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Man, talk about getting outed in the Bible. Diotrephes, this guy who's inscripturated forever as the person who rebelled against the Apostle John. And not content with that, says John, Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to. So he's not showing hospitality like Gaius was, and he's actually putting people out of the church who are showing hospitality to good teachers, to right teachers. He stops those who want to want to show hospitality and puts them out of the church this friends is leadership run amok this guy diatrophies we don't know anything about this guy diatrophies other than what we see here but let me just make a few deductions about him he must have been at one time a leader in this church an elder the pastor something because he's putting people out of the church he's the one that's corresponding with john He's, he's, he's some kind of authority is making decisions about who comes into the church and who's put out of the church. So whatever rightful authority he had at some point as an elder or pastor, now it's been compromised. And he's abusing his authority. And John the Apostle of Love is determined to put a stop to it. When I get there, I'm going to deal with this guy, says the Apostle John. Now, if all of this is surprising to you, if you're reading this and you're like, oh, wow, you know, a leader in the church that would do something like that? Ooh, gosh, that seems really bad. If, if that's your response to this, then you're, you're probably really young. Or you haven't seen a lot of things that happen in churches when spiritual authority gets abused. Some of you, you hear that and you're like, yeah, I could see that happening. Maybe some of you read that and you're like, yeah, I've, I've seen that happen in the church. Leadership run amok, leadership that gets compromised and people who start become domineering in their leadership roles. And maybe there's a sense of comfort for all of us as we think, okay, so the Apostle John had to deal with disruptive people in the church, behavior, uh, believers behaving badly 2,000 years ago, and so do we. There's some continuity there from John to us. And we have to confront like the Apostle John does here, sinful, selfish behavior of those people in the church. I mean, let's face it. We have to confront sinful, selfish behavior in our own hearts. Don't we now? This is a part of the Christian life. This is part of walking in the truth. And what was Diotrephes doing? What was he guilty of? Well, first of all, he was rejecting John's apostolic authority. That's like a leader that's akin to me or somebody else rejecting the authority of the Bible. John saw Christ. He walked with Christ. He wrote scripture as an apostle of Christ. Where does this guy get off just ignoring John's authority? Not only that, but Diotrephes was deceitfully telling lies about John. He was talking wicked nonsense against us, says John. Again, don't be surprised by that. That happened with Paul several decades before this as people started speaking against his authority as an apostle and Paul had to defend that. Power struggles in the church happened 20 centuries ago. They happen now. If that surprises you again, that's because you're very young in the Lord or you're naive 
even about the wickedness that resides in your own heart. There's a little bit of diatrophies in all of us. Isn't there now? Another thing Diotrephes was doing was he was refusing to show hospitality to good Christian leaders. And he was actually throwing people out of the church who would do that. And if you know anything about cults or cult leaders, this is pretty much the playbook of a cult leader. What they do is they, they consolidate the influencers in a group and they, they shut people off from their families They shut them off from other authorities, from other leaders, from other people who could influence them. No other authority, no other influence other than their own. That's that's the playbook of a cult leader. And that's Diotrephes' playbook right here. Nobody's getting in. Nobody's going to talk to these people except for me. I'm going to take control of these individuals. And John is telling Gaius, why is John telling Gaius this? What, what, What purpose does that serve? Is this gossip? Is he gossiping about this guy, Diotrephes? No, I, I think John is telling Gaius about this so that Gaius would get ready to mobilize himself and others, if necessary, to deal with this problem in the church. You've got a role in this, Gaius. And when I come there, we need to work together to fix this problem in the church. I think that's part of why John is writing this. I think another reason he's writing it, telling Gaius about this, and telling you about it too is as a cautionary ch- tale for all of us. Watch yourself. Watch yourself, Gaius. Watch yourself, Harvest Decatur. Watch yourself, Pastor Tony. Don't let power in the church go to your head. Don't do like Diotrephes. Pursue good and not evil. Imitate the good and not evil. Confront the evil where you can and root it out of the church. I'm teaching right now a class for Moody Theological Seminary. And I spent some time this last week talking to one of my students and almost this exact thing is happening in this student's church. There was a leader there who got domineering and controlling and caused all kinds of problems in the church. And as I I spoke to this student, I could just hear the pain in his voice as he was thinking about all the problems that this has caused for the church. People don't trust the church. People don't trust leaders anymore. How these actions have actually sullied the name of Jesus in their community. And I was just like on the phone talking with this guy thinking, oh my goodness, this is horrible. Heartbroken by this, that somebody would do this within the church. And as I was talking to him, I was actually thinking to myself and praying, thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't have elders like that at Harvest Decatur. Thank you, Lord, for giving us good, humble, godly leaders. But maybe I should have been praying this. Lord, keep us humble. Lord, keep us in a state of submission to you that we, so that we can continue to be godly, humble leaders. Help us to keep the diatrophies at bay inside of our heart. And I think a big part of that, elders, uh, y'all listening? Deacons, elders' wives, deacons' wives, everybody here at Harvest, a big part of that is confronting selfish behavior among fellow believers. We need to deal with the sin that's in our fellowship. 
repent, turn away from that, deal with the sin that's in our own heart, repent, turn away from that. I'm going to say one more thing, and then I'm going to move on to the fourth point. But this is important, and, and it's, it's probably going to hurt your feelings, okay? So brace yourself. Here it is. There's a little bit of diatrophies in each one of you and your heart and in me. There is. If you don't know that, if you don't believe that, you're naive about your own capacity for evil. And so we need, we need the Lord. Don't we now? And we need God's word too to teach us to deal with the sin in our community, the sin in our own heart. And we need to confront selfish behavior within the church. Now, we can do that together and we should do that together. And I think that will help us. But, you know, it doesn't have to just be negative. If that's all we ever did was confront the sin in each other's heart, that would get really discouraging after a while. So I love the way that John closes this letter. And I love this fourth point. Do this too. Encourage righteous behavior among fellow believers as well. Do both of these things. Discourage selfish behavior. Encourage righteous behavior. John says this, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whatever does good, whoever does good, sorry, is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. I think it's fair to assume because of his leadership role that Diotrephes was a believer behaving badly. And so John's going to confront him and he's going to deal with that. But I think it's also fair to say that Diotrephes may prove himself over time to be an unbeliever. If he doesn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, if he, if he responds to John's confrontation by more sin, more evil, more attacking of the church. John actually deals with that in 1 John. He says this. You can read this on the screen. The question is, is this Diotrephes? Is he one of these people? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, there were people who pretended to be Christians, maybe even had leadership role in the church that eventually proved themselves to be unbelievers. John knew them. He outed them even. And this is part, I think, 1 John 2 of what John Calvin and the Westminster Confession calls the perseverance of the saints. Real saints inevitably persevere in faith. They bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They grow as disciples. Otherwise, they were, really, they were never really saved in the first place. And look, I don't know what happened with diatrophies. I don't know. I think we could assume the worst, but who knows? Maybe John went there, confronted him, and diatrophies repented. Isn't that the best case scenario? Isn't that the purpose, even, of confrontation? Not to just show some force and show some authority, but to see people humble themselves and repent. Maybe that happened. I hope that it did. I don't know. There's also the possibility that diatrophies bowed up and continued to rebel. Now again, let's go back to encouragement. Speaking of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, John writes this in verse 12. Demetrius, 
Not Diotrephes, but Demetrius. Don't get those two mixed up. Those are very different people. John says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. This is the Apostle John speaking right here. You can trust this guy. We don't know anything about Demetrius other than what's said here. We don't know anything about Gaius other than what's said here. We don't know anything about Diotrephes other than what's said here in 3 John. But we know this. This is part of what the Holy Spirit's trying to convey to all of us this morning. The Holy Spirit wants you to do good, Harvesticator, like Gaius, like Demetrius. And the Holy Spirit wants you to turn away from evil like what we see with Diotrephes. And what was good about this guy, Demetrius? What was good about him? He received a good testimony from everyone. He's committed to the truth. He gets a commendation from John the Apostle. It's act, can I be honest? It's actually kind of boring, this guy, Demetrius. Just a run-of-the-mill Christian guy doing his faithful thing. You know, Diotrephes is much more exciting. Throwing people out of the church, defying the Apostle John. You know, that's like made for TV right there. Dysfunction, disorder in the church, someone domineering in leadership. People pay money to watch that on TV. That's exciting. Demetrius is kind of boring. Can I just tell you something this morning? Your elders here at Harvest Decatur will take boring. We'll take the boring of a Demetrius over the dysfunction and everything else of diatrophies. The world might see this as boring. Good testimony, good reputation, people who love Jesus, committed to the truth. The world might see that as boring. That's, that's what we live for as elders. That's what I live for as a pastor, seeing that in people. And then John writes this in verse 13. This is very similar to the ending of 2 John. He says, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Remember mouth to mouth from last week. Same phraseology here. Peace be to you, Gaius. The friends, church folk, greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Presumably the friends that John wants Gaius to greet for him were the people in the church, the place where Gaius is a leader, maybe even the pastor. We don't know, but we do know this. John gives Gaius four good pursuits in this book. Likewise, he gives us four good disciplines as Christians. Walking in the truth with fellow believers, showing hospitality to fellow believers, confronting selfish behavior, among fellow believers and encouraging righteous behavior among fellow believers. Let's do this, Harvest Decatur, can we? Let's do this. I'll close with this and then we can take communion together. In just a few days, June 6th, our country will commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day and the invasion of Normandy. And if you've ever seen Saving Private Ryan, then you have a sense of how horrendous and devastating that day was for our military and for our country. Many soldiers died that day in order to protect our freedoms in this country. And speaking of Saving Private Ryan, 
You might remember that powerful moment in that movie when as Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, is dying, he, he turns to Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, and he, he says one final thing before he dies. Y'all remember? He says, earn this. Earn it. It's a really powerful moment. It's, it's actually one of the most powerful moments, I think, in cinematic history. And then the, the scene fades and here's Private Ryan as an older man now and he's overcome by seeing the graveside of this Captain Miller and, and he turns to his wife and he asks her, am I a good man? Have I, you know, as almost to say, have I, have I earned the death of these soldiers? All these soldiers died so that I could stay, have I earned it? And there's a real sorrow in that and I think it's a good movie. I think it's a good theme, but, but I want to point out as we close the difference between that movie and the message and what Christ has done for you. Because just like Captain Miller, Jesus Christ died so that you might live. But you know what his final words to you on the cross were? They were not earn this. He said, it is finished. The price is paid. You don't have to earn this. And in fact, if you try to earn it, you just nullify everything that Jesus has done for you. Isn't that a comfort to know? You don't have to earn what Christ has done for you. Now, look, here's why I want to be crystal clear about this. We're, we're talking about all these good things that I want you to pursue as, as a Christ follower. And I'm going to double down on these. Pursue these good things. Pursue them, pursue them, pursue them. You can't pursue these good things in order to be loved by God. Is everybody with me? You can't earn God's favor by doing these good things. You have God's favor by faith, by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so as you look at these good things, as you pursue them, as you do them, you do them as an overflow of your love for the Lord. That's your motivation. He loved you first, so in your love for him, you're going to pursue these things. You're going to walk in truth with fellow believers. You're going to show hospitality to other believers. You're going to confront selfish behavior. You're going to encourage righteous behavior. Why do we do these things? Because we are loved. Because we are favored. Because God said on the cross, it is finished, and he died for you. So let that be your motivation. I'm going to pray for you in this, and then we'll take communion together as a reminder of what it took to pay for our sins. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. God, we do thank you that we don't have to earn our salvation or earn your favor or earn your grace. God, you have given us the free gift of salvation. And Lord, I want to pray for Harvest Decatur even as we take of these elements and remember what you did for us. God, would you help us to pursue a righteous life walking in truth, faithfulness to you as an overflow of our love for you.
confident in the fact that we are saved by grace. Lord, I believe that there's more lasting power. There's better motivation for obedience coming from the standpoint of grace than from that place of having to earn your favor. So God, remind us even right now that our salvation is not works-based, but grace-based. And use that, Holy Spirit. Use that to fuel good lives that are pleasing to you and that testify to the world that Jesus is awesome. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your death that made possible our salvation. We remember you now, Lord. We remember you. Amen.